Welcome to the September 21st episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Ecclesiastes 7-9 through 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13, but we'll only focus on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And by the way, congratulations, um, because you are joining me as we're about to cross another finish line. We're finishing another book in the New Testament as we make our way through um, the, the New Testament. So congratulations. Now let's uh, let's look at all, all of the verses. Let's uh, look at all 13 verses of this last chapter in 2 Corinthians. And so let's just start with, obviously, verse 1. He said, this is the third time I'm coming to you. The third time I'm coming to you. Now, that's not all of verse 1, but that's the first part, and I just want to talk about that just for a moment. He said, this is the third time he is about to go to them. Um, And he's writing from Ephesus as he writes this. Uh, The first time that he went to Corinth was uh, when he uh, was in um, the area that we call Turkey, um, Bible scholars call Asia Minor. Uh, it's where he was in those cities going back and checking on the, the cities where they had proclaimed the gospel. And he just wanted to see how the churches were doing, how the Christians were doing. And yet he had a vision of a man uh, from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia. And so he followed that Macedonian vision and ended up going over into places like Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and Athens, and proclaiming the gospel. And he continued to go south until he got to Corinth. Well, in Corinth, on that first visit, which was his second missionary journey, uh, he showed up at the synagogue like he always did and proclaimed the gospel and then ended up preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And so the gospel seems like it was already there in Corinth. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken... Um, Aquila and Priscilla were there. They were residents of Rome, but it seems like they were there in Corinth. Uh, And so Paul wasn't necessarily the first person to bring the gospel to Corinth, but he sure put gas on the fire. And uh, there were many people that got saved as a result of his ministry there, his first visit on his second missionary journey. So the second visit is recounted, the second visit to Corinth is recounted in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, when he refers to his harsh visit. You know, that one where he just said, church at Ephesus, hang on tight for a little bit. I'm going to be right back, but I got to go deal with something in Corinth right now. And so he headed to Corinth for a brief visit. It was a harsh visit. Well, now, as he is finishing up with this letter we call 2 Corinthians, which is at least 4 Corinthians, we know of at least two other letters that Paul wrote that were not Scripture, and so they are not included in the canon of the New Testament. But Paul said, I am now ready to show up the third time. The third time. And so as he writes his final words in this chapter, basically he is saying, please, please, please get your act together so that when I show up, we get to enjoy each other. 
I don't want to show up and demonstrate Christ's power in me by exercising my apostolic authority and setting things straight and raising my voice and the veins on my neck popping out. I don't want to have to do that. I want to show up and enjoy y'all. And so this last chapter is him just saying, please get things right. So he said, verse one, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And then he says, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, what he was doing is he was not only quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, but he was also quoting Jesus because Jesus referred to this verse. The context of this verse in Deuteronomy is that someone cannot be pronounced guilty unless there is the testimony of two or three witnesses. One person cannot pronounce somebody guilty. There has to be two or three witnesses. And so as he quotes this, and looking at the context in which this verse shows up, Paul is saying, I'm coming to you on a third visit And then he quotes this verse. He is saying that I'm going to show up and I can't pronounce guilt by myself. uh, And so I'm going to be showing up. But uh, I expect that there may be people who are guilty. And he said, I know that there are going to be others, even there in the church, who will rally around me and condemn that sin. Condemn that sin. And so Paul is, I mean, this is like it's a threat. Um, it's like a parent that talks to a child and says, you know, if you do that one more time, you're going to get it when we get home. <laughs> you know, the threat is, is what keeps the child from doing the bad thing. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Verse 2, he said, I gave you a warning when I was present the second time. What's the second time? Well, that was what was mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, the very brief but very harsh visit where he just went ballistic, dealing with sin that they were not dealing with. He said, I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I'm absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you seek, verse 3, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. Essentially what Paul is saying in verses 2 and 3 is that Jesus is not a wimp. In fact, he not only died on the cross, but he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, demonstrate a power, demonstrated a power, resurrection power, that could conquer death itself. That is an incredible power. And so what he is saying is, Christ is not a wimp. He exercised incredible power as the Father called him from the grave and as Jesus rose from the grave exercising resurrection power. He said that Christ is going to come in me in resurrection power. And he said, you know, if you're not right, I'm not going to be lenient. He said, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, well, Christ is not a wimp, so he is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. Paul is just letting them know, if I show up and you are still engaged in these things that I have warned you against, I'm not going to be lenient, and you're going to see the power of Christ coming out in me. 
The kind of power of Christ that came out even before he died and rose again, the kind of power that cleared the temple of all of the moneymakers. You know, all of those that were buying and selling and everything else, turning a place of worship into chaos that robbed God of an opportunity to enjoy the worship of his people. And so Paul said, I just want you to know, church at Corinth, that I'm going to be showing up. You better get things straight. If you don't, there's going to be trouble. Verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness. So he's talking about his crucifixion. And Jesus wasn't weak, but he willingly gave up his right and his ability to defend himself. So he made himself weak. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. He rose from the dead by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. <laughs> he said, you know what? We're weak in him. We're experiencing difficulties. The Lord is keeping us humble. The Lord is causing us to realize that apart from him, we can do nothing. We are weak in him. But when we show up, we're not going to be weak. His power is going to be flowing through us. Church of Corinth, get your act together. Verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? So what's he talking about here? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about salvation. I mean, up to this point, he's been talking to them as believers who are have gone astray. He's talking to them as believers who are merely, and not just merely makes it sound like it's not that big of a deal, but who are disobeying the Lord, disobedient to the commands of Scripture. Paul is calling them to an account, but he's treating them like believers. He's talking to them as believers. But as his letter is coming to a close, he said, okay, okay, I want you to make sure you're saved. I want you to test yourselves to see if you really are in the faith, to see if you really are one of the Lord's, if you really belong to him, if you really are trusting in Jesus and have been saved. He said, examine yourselves, because it's quite possible that as they examine themselves, they could realize that they failed the test. They would realize that they are not saved. Now, is that the end result? No, it shouldn't be. That if they realize that they were not saved, then what's the next step? Get saved. Trust in Jesus. Trust sincerely, passionately. Give everything you've got to the Lord Jesus and ask Him to save you and then receive His forgiveness, His De declared righteousness on our part, the Holy Spirit who was given to us, who now resides inside of us. And so it's not as if, you know, the failing of the test, that's the end result. No, I mean, if someone realized that they are not genuinely saved, then get saved. Get saved. So how is it, how is it that they could know if they're saved? Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. How could they know? Well, if you were to ask an average Christian today, how do you know you're saved? Some would say, well, I read my Bible. Nope, that's not proof that you're saved because lost people can read the Bible. Reading the Bible is good, but lost people can read the Bible. 
Well, I pray. Well, that's good. You, that's one of the basics of how it is that you grow in your walk with the Lord. But lost people can pray, especially if they're in a plane and, the, and all of the engines go out. Um, okay, well, I go to church. Oh, my goodness. Everybody in ministry, every single person in ministry could tell you that as they work behind the scenes in ministry, not everybody in church is saved. Not everybody on the rolls are saved because some of them act like the devil himself. <laughs> and uh, so that's not a proof that you're saved, that you go to church. Well, I give to the Lord or I give to charity. That's not a proof because lost people give to charity. So what are the proofs? How can we know? Well, once again, I would encourage you that uh, as you know, verse 5 is underlined in my Bibles, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Make sure you're saved. Uh, I, I've underlined that. Well, how do we know? Well, I've mentioned before the book of 1 John. It's five chapters, the book of 1 John. We're going to eventually get to that toward the end of the year as we make our way through the New Testament. But the book, the book of 1 John, um, in chapter 5, verse 13, says that these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. These things are written to those who believe so that you can know that you have eternal life. And so 1 John has proof after proof after yet another proof of how we can know that we're saved. Um, and so we're going to get to that, but you could go on and go to 1 John and just kind of read through that book and just see the telltale signs of someone who is legitimately saved. Some of the things that show up in that list in 1 John are things like love for God. A lost person is not going to do that, at least not the true God. They may love a God of their own imagination, but not the God of the Bible. Not a God that's just love, but they will love a God, that the God who is in the, uh, told, to, um, told to us in Scripture, who is also a God of justice, a God of wrath, but a God of mercy and grace and all of these things and more. Uh, someone who is a genuine believer loves the God of the Bible as he's portrayed in the Bible. Uh, some, another trait of, of a believer is that they will love others. They will just have a love for others. The Holy Spirit within them will enable them or at least push them toward greater degrees of obeying the first two commandments. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Another characteristic of a believer, uh, if we examine ourselves to see, am I really saved, is, is repentance. Repentance. First uh, John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Yeah, a lost person isn't necessary. They may confess it whenever they're going to be found out, or maybe it's they want to just have a clean conscience and their conscience is bothering them. But for the believer, it goes deeper than that. And it's, it's not just that we want to have a clean conscience. It's not just that we don't want the consequences or we don't want to be found out. With a believer, there's also this ingrained guilt of knowing that we have offended our gracious God. And so we repent. That's a sign of a believer. We turn from that sin. We're broken over sin. Uh, spiritual growth, obedience, you know, all of these things and more are genuine signs. A lost person isn't going to want to obey the Bible uh, as a for the purpose of coming to know the Lord and enjoy Him and experience His favor. They're not going to do that. 
a believer wants to know the Lord, wants to enjoy the Lord, wants to love the Lord, and wants to do what He says, wants to obey. And so all of the, and, and again, realize we're not talking about, you know, we're never talking about 100%. There's nobody that's 100% on any of this. A true believer will acknowledge, if we're honest, that, you know, a lot of times it's like a roller coaster ride. You're obeying and then you're not obeying and then you're obeying and then you're not obeying. And a lot of times when we're up there and, and enjoying a life of obedience, we're still not 100%. And so we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the general tendencies of the heart, the propensities of the heart. And so verse 5, Paul looked at the church at Corinth and said, We've been talking about all of these behaviors, but I'm just telling you, you need to really make sure that you're saved. You need to make sure that you're in the faith. You need to look for those validating signs, the legitimate validating signs that demonstrate that you truly are born again. And that's great counsel for everyone that claims to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 6. And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Paul said, I hope you're able to look at us and see that we're genuinely saved, that we haven't failed the test. Now, we talked, was it a couple of chapters ago, we talked about a dokimos, you know, uh, that, uh, that we would not be disqualified. Um, and I mentioned that that word sometimes means... Um, uh, uh, it can refer to a believer, as Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, it can refer to a believer that someone who is legitimately saved, but because of ongoing unrepentant sin, they are adokimos, they are disqualified, and so the Lord puts them on the shelf and uses someone else. He's not using them. Um, but clearly, it seems like in verse 6, this word is a dokimos as well. Clearly, Paul has been talking about salvation. This is not talking about someone who is saved and put on the shelf. Paul is saying, um, you know, I'm telling you all to examine yourself to make sure you're saved, make sure you're in the faith. And then he turns around in verse 6 and says, I hope to goodness y'all are able to tell that we belong to the Lord, that we're saved, that we are in the faith. And there ought to be evidence. I mean, this, this whole thing within current... Christendom of, you know, just saying, "Hey, I'm a Christian," and and that's all that that's all that's necessary. That's bizarre. It's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is one where we are justified when we are saved. It is at that moment that we are justified. We're forgiven and declared righteous, and so many other things are true of us. But then, from that point on, God calls us from justification to progress on through sanctification, to become more like Jesus. It's not just, I'm saved. It's, is there fruit that I'm saved? And so that's what Paul was referring to. Hopefully you're able to see the fruit in us and realize that we really are the real deal. We are children of God. We're saved. Verse 7, But we pray to God that you do nothing wrong, not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. And so what it seems as if Paul is saying here is even if you look at us and seem and it seems as if we have failed the test, you know, because your leaders are railing against us and bringing up false accusations against us and so you may think, well Paul, I'm not sure that you're saved based on what our leaders are telling us about you. 
Well, what Paul said in verse 7 is even if you think we haven't passed the test, even if you think we're not saved, the real burden of our heart is that you, the church at Corinth, are right. Paul said, whatever you think of us, we just want to know that you are right, that you are saved, that you are in the faith, that when you step through death's door, you will be looking at the Lord and not experiencing a place of torment. Verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And so what I believe he may have been picturing here is a time in his life when he was standing against the truth. Yeah, he was against the truth. You know, he was against the way. He was against Jesus. He was against Christ followers. And in fact, he had letters of commendation. He had letters that he was taking to Damascus to go get Christians from there and bring them back to Jerusalem to, if nothing else, put them in jail. But there were also the, there was always the possibility that he could do something worse. And in fact, something worse did, we do know, happen to Stephen. And yet, on the road to Damascus, the Lord saved him. The Lord just, in a lightning bolt of whatever that was, Paul fell to the ground and the Lord said, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting believers, but the Lord said, when you mess with my followers, you're messing with me. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? You know, what is it? And Paul, in that moment, in that instant, was saved. He was standing against the truth, and the truth Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, I am the truth. The truth came up against him, and all of a sudden, Paul realized he could no longer stand against the truth. And so now, he was standing for the truth. That's what he was doing. His life was all about what is true, and ultimately, truth is found in Christ. In Christ. And so he was calling these Corinthians just to realize that they were not hearing from a guy who was confused as far as what truth is and what the gospel is and all of these other things. No, Paul had come into a face-to-face -face confrontation with the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And so now he was just calling the Corinthians to align up with the truth as well. He said, I once stood against it. It didn't go well for me, but I did get saved. The Lord graciously saved me, and now I stand for the truth. And I just want you, Church of Corinth, to make sure you are aligned with the truth as well, that you are saved. Verse 9, we rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray that you become fully mature. You know, you, you, you make progress in your pursuit of holiness. He said, we are happy when we are weak and you are strong. Paul said, our happiness is not being derived from our condition. Uh, Paul's going to write to the church at Philippi, you know, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am, whatever condition, whatever the Lord sends my way, I've learned to be content. And so he said in verse 9, we are happy, we rejoice when we're weak, 
that's okay. We're going through some difficult times. That's all right. We're okay. Our happiness is not rooted in that. But he said, we rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. He said, our joy is found when we hear you are doing well, Church of Corinth. I mean, it's like any parent. Um, any parent. You know, I mean, my youngest son uh, recently got his pilot's license. And, you know, I was having a conversation with him about a week ago and and told him how as a, as a young child growing up uh, outside of Houston, Texas, uh, just right down the road from Johnson Space Center, and I loved the space program and uh, loved the idea of flying. And, you know, I just thought that would be so cool, but it always felt out of reach for me. And so I, I just never did it, never got a pilot's license, never, ever uh, even had the controls of a plane until a couple of weeks ago when my youngest son took me up. Um, but he got a pilot's license. My youngest son did. And so my youngest son, Joseph, said, Dad, is it... To make you feel jealous, does I, I feel bad, you know, if, if I'm, that I'm doing something that you didn't get to do? And I told him with all sincerity, I said, "Son, <laughs> my joy used to be rooted in what I could do. You know, my joy, it, boy, I would have been happy back then, many years ago, if I had been able to fly a plane." But I said, I'm at the age now where I've got a different set of priorities, you know, different different set of priorities. And getting a pilot's license is just not even close to the top of the list. I said, my joy is coming by seeing my son get that pilot's license and enjoy uh, being up in the air and just experiencing that. And I said, my joy is coming from seeing you happy. Right? That's what a parent does. A parent's not jealous when their child succeeds, when their child does well. The parent finds happiness when their child does well. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 9. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We're happy when you, Church of Corinth, are doing good. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He said, you know, we just want you to continue to grow. Verse 10. This is why I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you, in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. And so the authority that the Lord gave him was the apostolic authority, the ability as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as the 13th, or as as Paul would call himself, one a, an apostle untimely born, born you know a little too late, um, but he still had the authority of an apostle. Paul said, "I want to use my authority when I show up to bless you. I want to use my authority to encourage you and to help you. I don't want to use my apostolic authority." to come in and judge you and discipline you. I don't want to do that. Please, Church at Corinth, get things straight so that when I show up, we can have a really good time. Now, I will tell you, as he goes into these last three verses, uh, as he just brings the plane in for a landing, that it appears that as Paul was at Corinth, uh, when he went the second time, um, that... uh, it appears that he wrote Romans from there. 
that he wrote Romans from there. And it looks as if, as Paul wrote to the church at Rome, uh, he had an, uh, a reference, and I can't remember, I think it's toward the end, maybe the last chapter. He basically said, you know, uh, what is here in Achaia, which was Corinth, uh, he said the things are pretty much complete, and I've got no other responsibilities here, and I plan to travel on to you. And so it seems as if the church of Corinth got their act together. It seems as if they did. Now, whether they got their act together before Paul showed up or he showed up, had to deal with some harsh things, and then they got their act together, all I know is is as we read in Romans, and I wish I would have gotten that. In fact, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to hit pause, (laughs) and you're not going to know it because I'm going to hit pause and then hit play, and so I'm going to have the answer right in a moment, but I'm going to hit pause and find that verse in just a moment. Okay, so we just had a time warp. I had a chance to to, to look at uh, Romans, and it's actually in Romans chapter 15. There's 16 chapters in Romans, so it's toward the end of Paul's letter to Rome. But he says in verse chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, he says this, That is why, he's writing to Rome, that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I've strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. And so he said in verse 23, I no longer have any work to do in these regions. It seems as if what, and Paul was writing that from, it it seems that he was writing it from Corinth, um, that Corinth was, everything was good. Everything was fine. The church got its act together, and the Apostle Paul, after spending some time with him, was ready to head on and move on to Rome, even as he desired to go to Spain. Verse 11, uh, back to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. So what he's saying is, be happy. And when we get to the book of Philippians, uh, that's going to be a major theme as he's writing from uh, a position of imprisonment, he's encouraging the church at Philippi to be happy. And uh, so we're going to talk about that whenever we get to that book. But right now he says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, be happy. Well, where are we to get our happiness? Um, Well, like uh, you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes right now, Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, um, found all sorts of things that he could pursue, all sorts of paths to try to satisfy that inner longing, that desire for happiness inside. And yet, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. It's all meaningless. It's all purposeless under the sun, except for, toward the end of the book, to fear God, to enjoy Him, to stand in awe of Him, and to obey His commands, right? And so our joy is primarily to be found in Jesus, primarily to be found in a relationship with Jesus. Like we would enjoy a relationship with someone else, we are to pursue a relationship with Jesus, to know Him in our mind, but also in our heart, and in the moments of our days, to know Him so that we can enjoy Him and be happy in Him. And then there's many secondary things that we can enjoy after we get our love for Him right. 
the secondary things like enjoying a really good meal, enjoying a time with friends, enjoying you know playing a game with somebody, um, enjoying being out at the the beach or you know on a mountainscape or what whatever. Um, be happy. It comes from ultimately getting our relationship with the Lord right and then enjoying other things under Him. He also says, become mature. That means just get to a place where you are much more progressed in your faith. You understand things and it's affecting how you act. Be encouraged. He told him, be encouraged. Um, and our encouragement ultimately comes from uh, knowing the Lord and knowing that the Lord is fully in charge of all things and even the bad things that happen to us, God is going to work them out for our ultimate good, which means to make us more like Jesus. He said, be of the same mind, and so he's calling them to be unified. Well, he's writing to a church that he had previously said that uh, you know they were very divided. I'm of Christ, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Um, he's calling them to be united, not separated, uh, but united. He said, be at peace. Well, one, be at peace with God, realize that Jesus died so that we can be at peace with God and enjoy a relationship with Him, but also be at peace with other people. And then he says, and the God of love and peace, the God who loves us, the God who can give us peace will be with us. We will experience the presence of God as we do these things. Verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is one of the things that we have to be so careful when we read the Bible is to immediately, we have to be so careful not to immediately jump to application. We cannot do that. Because if you read the Bible and immediately jump to application, then you can come to wrong conclusions and, you know, kind of awkward or even flat-out wrong uh, behaviors. Um, here it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That doesn't mean that we say, okay, we're going to do exactly what the Bible says. We're going to give up handshaking. We're not going to hug each other anymore. We're going to kiss You know, at church. You no, know, <laughs> if we jump to application, that's, that's the logical outcome, but that's not how we study the Bible. Studying the Bible, and we've talked about this before, is a three-step process. Well, ultimately, you know, it's prayer at the beginning and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, but then it's a three-step process. One, observation. What does the text say? Two, interpretation. What does the text mean? Three, application. How does it apply? How does it work? Right, And so whenever I see greet one another with a holy kiss, observation, what does it say? Well, Paul is telling that church to give each other a kiss, you know, as a sign of unity. Um, and kissing was appropriate. In fact, when Judas went to the garden and gave Jesus a kiss, that was a horrible kiss, but it was a culturally appropriate thing for Judas to give Jesus a kiss. It's just Judas misused that. It was a sign of affection. It was There was no sexual anything to it at all. There was no arousal at all. It's, it was just a culturally appropriate. So, greet one another with holy kiss. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, observation, to when you meet each other, give each other a kiss, probably on the cheek, something like that. Interpretation, that's the second step. What does it mean? Okay, so what it means is, is Paul is saying, when you meet with each other, 
when you see each other, when you gather together for worship with each other, then give each other a sign that you genuinely care for each other. A, a, a culturally appropriate, biblically appropriate sign that you care for each other. That's the meaning, is just give a sign. A culturally appropriate, biblically appropriate sign of affection. So application, how does that apply in 21st century America? Well, as we say, okay, Paul is saying in this verse that when we show up, we are to give a sign, physical, right? This A kiss is physical, that we are to give a physically appropriate sign, a culturally appropriate sign, a biblically appropriate sign, that we care for each other. So what would that look like in 21st century America? Well, it would not look like a kiss, it would not be a kiss. That just would be very... If you're in France, maybe a kiss on either side of the cheek, that'd be appropriate. Here in America, not so much. And so what would be culturally appropriate? How could we apply this text? Well, the application would be, okay, the way that we share affection, which is culturally appropriate, biblically appropriate, is a handshake. Or maybe a hug, but when a guy's hugging a gal, he leans over, not to give a full body hug, but he leans over or gives a, gives a side hug. And so that's how we interpret Scripture. We look to see what it says. We, dis, we, did, we ask God's Holy Spirit to help us understand what it means, and then we take that meaning and drop it down into our, into our world to find the application. Okay, so I kind of took off on a tangent there for a second. Let's finish the book up. All the saints send you greetings. Well, once again, all the saints, Catholics would say that you cannot be a saint until you've been dead for a while, and then we've got to have a little bit of a discussion about you know, whether or not you are qualified to become a saint. Did you do a miracle, and so on and so forth. Um, no, Paul's not talking about dead people. He said, all the saints send you greeting. These are people that are alive. And all this means is, is people that are saved because they are saved. They've been credited with Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, they are holy ones. We don't always act holy, but we are holy ones. We are saints. Verse 13, And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Ah, so we see the Trinity in this verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father, right? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now he talks about three different things connected with each of those three, but I just want to bring up the point that uh, the Trinity is mentioned here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We enjoy relationship with each of those three. All three of them play very different parts in our relationship with the Godhead, but, uh, but we recognize all three as being three persons in one Godhead, uh, all equal, and we serve only one God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and we thank you so, so much that, uh, that you have given to us your word, and as we've been reading through 2 Corinthians, we're just reminded that your word, and a, a, a big part of the New Testament, is just written in letter form. And so we're able to read your word as we read the letters that, uh, that your Holy Spirit enabled men to write. Um, 
And so, Lord, I pray that as we read these and as we get to kind of peer into the things that were said to churches or to individuals in the first century, that we would be able to understand what it says, understand what it means, and then focus on the application that your Holy Spirit would enable us to read these letters, to read these inspired scriptures and understand how it is that they inform us regarding how we are to think and how we are to behave. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you for the spirit that enlightens our minds so that we can understand your word and put it into practice. And we're asking that you would help us, Lord, to do just that. We want to become more like you so that when you come back for us, we're ready. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.